Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Uh, Welcome to the big show. We're here in Theater One. Uh, We wanted to make sure that you had ample seating and we needed a bigger screen. Josh, can you throw a picture of me up there? I think actually we needed a little bit more size and space. I actually uh, was hanging out with some different church planters last night. And if you guys remember, uh, we had a church planter who's going to be planting in sort of the Lincoln Park neighborhood. Uh, his name's Michael. He came and preached a few weeks ago. And uh, his wife was like, I was like, hey, my name's Josh. I don't know if we ever met because uh, I was out of town that week. And she was like, yeah, 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 I saw you larger than life. I was like, I'm sorry for how disappointing I am because I like shot a video and then we played it on the screen. And now it's just a normal sized human. Anyway. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Today we are continuing our brand new series we started at the beginning of 2022 uh, in the book of Philippians. So uh, today we are talking about verses 12 through uh, 26. Uh, every once in a while I like to open up with an illustration that could have easily been lost to time. Uh, there are some things that, you know, a preacher may work really hard on and then give it one week and then it is gone forever. And so today I want to pretend uh, as if I were a preacher in a small southern town in the year of 1998. Uh, I have a mustache and uh, my sort of relaxing hanging out pants are still pleated khakis like that's dressing down for me. Uh, and I drive a Ford Windstar. Now, uh, ironically, I've also described a 24-year-old man named Jr. Right? Like, but he does it kind of ironically. It's not the same as just sort of like doing it. This guy, he was doing it very seriously, but now it's kind of cool for kids to do it. Uh, ironically, that's another story. Here goes. <clears throat> you guys know the Life Is Good Company? You know what I'm talking about? They had the little, like, uh, it was like a little stick figure, and he was doing all kinds of different activities. Uh, the idea is they would have this little cartoon. They would print it on anything. You could get it on a T-shirt. You could get it on bumper stickers. You could get it on regular stickers. You could get it on cases for your Nokia phone. You could get it on uh, tattoos, probably. I don't really know. And uh, I don't know. Does anybody still have one of these products? I want to see. I, I very seldom poll the audience. All right, so good. We've got a few out there. Uh, I had one sticker that I thought was really cool, and uh, it was in college. Stumbled on one of these uh, stores. They had retail stores every once in a while, if you could find one, usually in little seaside towns, you know. Um, And uh, you would find one of these stores, usually by the beach, and uh, you'd look around in there, and you'd find what you were into. And they would make this little stick figure do all kinds of millions of things, right? Like, you know, he was into all these different activities, and, uh, man, it got really freaking specific do you remember this like there was any activity that you were into in the world the stick figure was into it as well and he would say life is good below it that was all it was so do you want to be camping with a dog you can do that do you want to be in the mountains you can do that do you want to be fishing fishing was the worst one i think half of them were fishing because they got in just super niche areas of the fishing world right he's like deep sea fishing life is good you know uh boat fishing on a river life is good fly fishing life is good spear fishing life is good that weird thing where you stick your hand in the mouth of a catfish life is good like this guy was all about everything and it's weird how you know just found your niche and you were like that's me i was a 21 year old guy uh thinking that i had the world in front of me i found the one that just spoke to me and said hey life is good when this is happening and it was 
in a hammock. I remember it was like a little, the life is good guy was kind of leaning up out of a hammock, kind of like, yeah, life is good, right? And I realize now looking back, like what a sad state of affairs that at 21 years old, I thought like the pinnacle of the good life was being suspended horizontally midair in a piece of fabric and probably sleeping, right? Like I was like, you know when life is best? When I am unconscious. And it's nice then. I really like that. Yeah, it's been a sad marker for the rest of my life. Uh, this is the Life is Good store. Now, um, when people saw this sticker on my water bottle, they really thought what I was conveying to them is that life is good when I am doing this thing. And that was kind of like the point of the Life is Good thing. You were actually sharing people like how you had found the good life, like what was actually good about life to you. And so you're sort of like even like uh, advertising that to other people and letting them know like life is good when you are doing this. Now, if I was continuing on with my 1998 style preacher thing, then I would be like life is good with jesus and then you guys would all clap and then we'd pass the offering plate and walk out right um but uh that's not what i'm going to do because it's a weird thing this is what i've been thinking about all week long in studying this text and really uh it's been something that's been building in me for years now and this part i'm gonna i'm gonna go way off script from 1998 preacher uh i don't know that life is necessarily good following jesus now i know like i said this is the most anti-preacher thing we may not have a church next week you guys might revolt um but i remember sitting down and having this conversation with a friend once and uh asking like does does following jesus does it like make your life better and i know that's like a complex question in general like what's better and worse in life and and how do you even sort of like quantify that like how do you even compare those things but it's just so strange because I think, and this is the way that I was raised, and I think people that, you know, have been around and, and other Christians and even just the temptation that I have within myself, there's a temptation when you're talking to someone about Jesus that maybe doesn't know Jesus to sort of give them the sales pitch of like, hey, man, this is how your life is going to be better. And then that temptation leads to this whole thing, you know, like you've probably heard people call it like prosperity gospel where people are like, well, if you follow Jesus, you'll have more money, uh, you'll have a better life, you might even grow a little bit taller, right? Like this weird kind of like thing that is snuck into Christianity that's like, if you can just follow Jesus, then your life is going to turn out better. And implied in that better is actually the sense that it's going to be better in the ways that most people want their lives to be better. And I'm arguing that maybe that's not the case. A lot of times we talk about Jesus if it's like a product or service. You know, you'd say like, well, do you, if you do CrossFit, you will get stronger. Or if you buy this hair dryer, uh, it'll cut down on the amount of time that you have to spend in the morning or something like that. And a lot of times when we think about following Jesus, we throw out these kind of motivations that may not even be something that he has promised to us or something that we are even given in this life. Think about like the classic advertising motivations. Like if you really boil down almost every commercial on television, they are offering you one of these three things, money, sex, and power. Think about those things. Does Jesus, following Jesus actually get you more money? There are some people that would say yes, but I would argue, at least in my experience, it might even be less, right? Like Jesus is calling you to live a sacrificial life where you are giving money away that you would consider your own. Jesus is calling you to be honest and generous with your money to uh, strategies that do not necessarily get you more money. Think about sex. Does Christianity and following Jesus actually sort of provide you more of a life or more of a, you know, uh, sex life that is more attractive to the world around you? I don't think so. 
Christianity uh, follows sexual limitations, which is something that I think our world does not necessarily get behind most of the time. Uh, Christianity sort of paints a picture of sex within the confines of marriage, which is not something that is very appealing to people that are not following Jesus. Now, it may be better for the long-term well-being. I'm not saying that it's actually, like, worse, but I'm just saying, like, if you were coming to this dry and were just like, man, I want to find a religion that's going to give me a better sex life, I don't think you would look at Christianity as that. Power. I don't think Christianity offers you more power. I think, I think in a lot of ways it's about giving up your power, yielding it to God, and then being able to use it for others as opposed to amassing it for yourself. These three things, money, sex, and power, are the sort of like three central motivators that marketing companies have decided are what get people to do things, to buy things, to go and be things. And Christianity seems to offer almost nothing on them. Then if you even take a step back from just like things that motivate us, you have to ask yourself, or at least the question that I've been wrestling with is like, does it make your life better in some sort of like intangible and, and abstract kind of way, or, or at least in avoiding suffering in some way? Like, do Christians get hit by hurricanes less? Are there lower rates of cancer among followers of Jesus? I don't think so. This is a complex thing, I think, to even sort of bring up because there's sort of there's these competing ideas even throughout Scripture. And I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself in the sermon, but there's competing ideas throughout Scripture. And I think when you just sort of camp out and take one of them, uh, man, it is easy to get way off and find yourself experiencing a Christianity far from what you feel like you were promised. I mean, there are people out there that would tell you, there are probably better preachers than me that would stand up here and say, man, if you would just pray harder, then Christians would have lower rates of cancer. Man, if you just loved God a little bit more, Christians would get hit by hurricanes less. And don't hear me wrong, there's definitely some of that in the Bible. I mean, we believe that God supernaturally acts in this world and sometimes acts on behalf of Christians who are calling out to him in prayer. I don't want to say that none of that is is it possible or that none of that regularly occurs in this world? But I also just want to recognize something, and, and I hope that this is like uh, salve to a wound to people who have been sold a lie, is that Christians and following God, no matter how much you love him, no matter how devout you are, still, still gives you a life that includes suffering. I don't know, but at the very least, I think I can confidently say that Christianity as a path to just happiness, as the world would define it, is not your best option. If happiness is all that you want from this life, if, if happiness and some sort of sense of worldly fulfillment is all that you want, then Christianity is not the approach to take to get it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to lean into this idea. We're going to explore this thought together. And we're going to sort of uh, give ourselves, hopefully, a new calculus for understanding life and for what we are trying to accomplish here and what god is doing in and through that and we're going to do that by looking at the book of or the book of philippians through the lens of the life of paul and what's really interesting about this book i said this last week and i'll probably say it every week is that philippians is kind of even more so than other books of the bible that paul wrote uh he is sitting there writing philippians and a lot of times he's just sort of ref 
reflecting on his own experience. And then that in turn becomes a gift for the church to learn and to understand how following Jesus ought to be lived out. Because Paul here is just sort of like giving you some musings and reflecting on his current life and then uh, implying and in so doing inviting you to do the same. So this is Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 12. He has sort of these three different sections. So the first two paragraphs of the first two sections. So uh, verse 12 says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, pause right there. Don't you love that when preachers get going? They're like, hey, I got this big text to read. I'm going to stop after the first sentence. We're done. Uh, All right. So uh, Paul says, hey, what has happened to me? What he's referring to there is uh, being imprisoned. So he is actually in Rome right now writing to the church that he started in Philippi. And he's saying, what has happened to me being captured by the Roman Imperial Guard and being put in prison uh, is actually uh, there to really advance the gospel. So verse 13 says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he opens by saying that him being imprisoned, which, you know, a lot of people would argue would be one of the worst things that could happen to you. Him being imprisoned is actually something really good that has happened to him. And it actually also serves to advance the gospel. He says, it is good that I am in jail because people are hearing the gospel, not just because like people outside are hearing because all of my friends are actually more bold. They're like, look at Paul. He's in jail. Surely we can do a little bit more ourselves to share the gospel. But also the imperial guard, the people who are actually watching over him and keeping him in prison are hearing the gospel from Paul. He is sitting there in his prison cell telling them, hey, uh, I'm here because Jesus loves me and he actually loves you. I'm here because Jesus died on the cross for me and he also died for you. I'm here because he is the son of God and has the power of salvation. Now, uh, those are some complex mental gymnastics for a lot of us, I think. Right. Like thinking of ourselves as being better off in prison. That gets a little difficult. He gets into some even deeper mental gymnastics as we go on in 15. He says some preach some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Now, this is far and beyond, I think, the most surprising thing from this entire section of text. Uh, If you haven't been to Dwell Church before, we uh, go through sections of the Bible. We go verse by verse, and we're actually trying to see what it has to offer to our lives, what God is trying to teach us through this text. And sometimes we have to deal with difficult and confusing and seemingly random things. Let me lay out the story for you right here. Paul is sitting here in prison. He hears about some people who are preaching Jesus and finds out that they are people who are doing it out of selfishness. Uh, they are doing it not uh, for like the good of the gospel, but they're doing it that they think they can afflict Paul while he's in prison. So they're like, haha, you're in prison. We're going to preach a bunch of sermons for you. I don't really know what their game is here. You know, they're like, haha, you got in prison for the gospel. We're going to preach the gospel just to rub it in your face. Right. But he's recognizing that some people are actually out there preaching the good news of Jesus, but they are doing it for their own personal gain and their own selfish ambition. Now, isn't it good that that doesn't happen anymore? Isn't that great that we've progressed way past that as a church, that no one would dare to do that? No, it happens all the freaking time. And you know what's really scary about this is that Paul, this is, you know, 
uh, a couple of decades probably. This is in uh, around AD 60, I think, that he's writing this book. So this is like maybe three decades after Jesus dies and rises and goes to heaven. Uh, and in that time, there's already a group of people who are out there saying, hey, I could actually have a really good life if I started preaching Jesus. Hey, I could actually gain this following. I could probably make some money off of this thing. I could live a comfortable life. These other people would follow me. They'd serve me. They'd work for me. They start using Jesus for their own gain. I imagine Paul had some weird interactions with these people and probably some words to say to them. Then he gets thrown in prison, and then all of a sudden these people are like, great, free reign, now I have this chance. It is a sad reality of the sinfulness and brokenness of our world that people would use something as beautiful and true and holy as the word of God, as the gospel of Jesus Christ for their own gain, and yet it happens. And while especially in this current uh, world that we live in, this, this sort of like climate that we live in, a lot of us as Christians might think of it as our job to sort of like come and lay the smack down on those guys. We might even think like it's our job to sort of blast them out on social media and stuff like that. And, and don't hear me incorrectly. There is a, a place for standing up for justice and truth. But what we also have to recognize right here is that Paul is like, I don't know, they're preaching the gospel Man, it stinks that they don't know that they could be actually living the gospel as well, but at least the gospel is being preached. This is some very, very strange uh, mental gymnastics that, he, that are happening right here. Then here's the third paragraph where really we're going to camp out for uh, the rest of our time today. And I'm hoping in this place he's going to show us sort of the answer to my question from the beginning is that is life better following Jesus? Surely following Jesus can work out for our better and for our good. Verse 19 says this, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Ha ha. There we have it right there. Paul is saying that if we pray, we can make whatever we want happen. Right. He's saying, like, I know through your prayers, through the spirit of Jesus, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. This is why we do this, because, you know, uh, even though bad things do end up happening for Christians, we know that if we just pray more, the Holy Spirit is going to step in and deliver us. Right. Is that not your experience in life? Whenever something bad has happened to you, you say a prayer and instantly that bad thing is reversed. That is what Paul is talking about right here. Right. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Still good. But with that full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Hmm. It took a kind of sad turn there. He opens this paragraph by saying, I know it's going to turn out for my deliverance because you guys are praying. I got Jesus on my side. The Holy Spirit's with me. Also, it could also work out for my death, and that should be okay, too. And here he is, Paul, arguably the greatest Christian that has ever been. He's been broken out of jail. He's cast out demons. He's planted churches all over the world. He seems to have like a direct line to the Holy Spirit. God is working in supernatural ways throughout his life. And he says, hey, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, but I might also die. Then he says this, which is really the crux of our entire uh, section today. Verse 21, he says this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He goes on 
to sort of explain what he's meaning there. In verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He says that he would much rather die and be with Jesus, but it's actually necessary for him to remain a little bit longer and to finish his work, even so that it might benefit the Philippians, the people that he is writing to. He is saying, like, if I stick around, it is only so that I can serve you, the church, even more. And I love this simple verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says there, to live is Christ. Uh, which, as you guys all know, means uh, in the Greek, actually, is tazen Christos, right? I know you were thinking it already. I don't want to offend your intelligence here. And I furthermore know that you know that sounds a lot like the Greek phrase tazen Christos, right? I mean, you were thinking it. You heard it as soon as you heard the Greek come out, right? Uh, now, what's interesting about that, though, uh, and this is, this is some freaky stuff right here. Ben Witherington III turned me on to this idea when I was, like, studying this stuff. Isn't that the best theologian name you've ever heard? Ben Witherington III. So uh, this word, this phrase, actually, was a pretty common phrase. If you're reading a bunch of, like, Greek literature at the time, you would have heard Tazen Krestos uh, as a pretty common thing that pops up all throughout uh, the Greek-speaking world at this time. And do you know the meaning of Tazen Krestos? So it sounds almost identical to Tazen Christos, which Paul here is using to say, for me to live is Christ. Tazen Christos is a common cliche that was used that translates loosely to life is good. Maybe this company's a lot older than we thought. Yeah, you see the connection from the beginning? You see why I had to go 1998 on you guys? Right? Paul is like, look at you with your life is good togas. Your life is good stickers all over your wineskins. No, not life is good. To live is Christ. I love it that he's sort of like working off of this cliche too. Like I, I went a long way to sort of describe that, but I want you to actually for a moment put yourself in the shoes of someone who is a Greek speaker. Like what he is doing here is working off of something that is commonly held among the people there and probably a cliche used in a similar way to today, right? Like this sort of sense that people will say that they'll throw it out there, they'll put it on a t-shirt that's like, life is good, like, you know, it's fun sometimes, you get to do these good things, sometimes uh, life can be fine, like if I am hanging out in my hammock, and I've got my dog and my Jeep beside me and life is good. That is the good life. And Paul actually says, hey, this is Paul here writing to you from prison because I have been serving Jesus and they threw me in jail for it. And I am here to tell you that life is Christ. To live is Christ. To take the whole argument into context, it starts out Paul is in prison for serving Jesus. He says that he is actually grateful to be there because the gospel is going forth as a result of him being there. He says he hopes that God will deliver him. But even if he doesn't, Paul wins either way. One, he wins eternal life with God or he wins more time to work for God, to serve his kingdom. This is Paul's mindset he has. 
as he is sitting in prison, probably awaiting his own death, after having been beaten and flogged and shipwrecked and stoned and rejected and everything else that he has experienced, still he says, if God will let me live a little bit longer, I will continue to serve him. But if not, I get to be with him. And the freaky thing is that he actually sounds downright cheerful about it. In fact, most people recognize the book of Philippians as Paul's most joyful book. This is him in his best mood possible. Sitting here facing alternatives of being with Jesus after his own death. To continue to suffer as he serves him. Paul looks out at these things with pure joy. As for me, I feel like I spend so much of my life trying to avoid suffering and death. I spend so much of my life trying to figure out ways to suffer less and live longer. But Paul here seems to be arguing that we should just choose to make sure that we are suffering for the right things and to make sure that we are actually dying for the right things. I would argue that if any of this is trustworthy at all, if we can sort of, uh, for one moment, sort of entertain the idea that Paul is throwing out here, that it might actually be the path to a life of joy and of meaning, not of happiness, not of whatever a life is good sticker might tell you is good about life, not of more money, not of more power, not of more authority, but a life that is actually filled with meaning might be all caught up in this simple statement that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think it might be a path to a chaos-proof life in a lot of ways. Because you see, Paul is not shook here by anything. I mean, he's in prison for crying out loud. You'd think at some point he'd be sitting here thinking, like, what have I done with my life? I've clearly gone the wrong way. Me, you know, like the slightest bad thing happens to me. I stub my toe and I'm just like, life is meaningless. I'm out. I'm done. This is just, what's the point of it all, right? Yet Paul here is experiencing chaos that I could never actually fully comprehend. The the life that he has experienced, nothing at all like my life. And yet he seems so much more chaos proof. He seems so much more focused on what's important and what actually matters in life. You guys know that I love watching movies, uh, but uh, and I think it's because I have an overactive imagination, and sometimes I can just fully lose myself in the false reality that is put before me on a screen. So uh, I just totally veg out. I'm fully invested into a movie, and I hate that moment when a movie like takes you out of it, and they like screw something up, and then you get uninvested, and you're like, oh no, I'm still in the real world, and I've got popcorn on my belly because I've been laying on the couch like that. Uh, I hate that moment. And one of the things that has been really, really bugging me lately uh, is, like, you're ever watching, like, a heist movie, okay? So they're not trying to save the universe, right? They're not trying to save the planet. Uh, they're trying to steal some money or something like that. And then there's this moment where this character, they're like, you know, let's say they're giving them the pitch. You know, they're like, all right, we're going to steal all the queen's jewels. And the guy's like, all right, yeah, I could get behind this. How are we going to do it? And they bust out the whiteboard, and, you know, and they got the strings going everywhere. And then they're like, you know, practicing different things. And I love how they have 
the money to begin with to create like a fake version of whatever vault they're about to break into. Like, that's kind of crazy. I'm like, man, if you have that skill, you're wasting it. You could make money doing that for different things. You could use it for good. But then they're like, all right, so what's going to happen? They're like, we're going to break in. I bet the police are going to show up. And the guy's like, oh, no, the police, that's not good. And then uh, they're like, yeah, uh, they'll probably start shooting at us. We need to protect ourselves. And you know what? No one in these movies ever goes, you know what? I think I'm good. Right? Like, potential of death. I think I'll just go work at the Gap. I don't think I'm going to die there. Right? Like, nobody's going to be shooting at me. No, in these movies, you're, like, getting through it. Like, uh, it's just the worst with, like, heist movies. They're, like, you know, they're stealing something, and they're on a train. They're, like, I remember watching this one. They got these, like, you know, little uh, walkies or whatever, and they're talking, and they're, like, you guys go on without me. Somebody's got to press the button on this explosive. And they're, like, sacrificing their lives for a chunk of money. Like, that now they're not even going to get to spend. Like I said, they're not saving the universe, right? They're just, like, saving a little bit of money. And because of that, they are willing to offer up their entire lives. They have found something, and they're like, I'll die so that you guys can get out. I'm like, no, everybody drop your guns and raise your hands. Go to prison. Like, you'll live for the next 10 years. I mean, it's not, you didn't even kill anybody. Just go to prison. You're fine. How long would it even last? Paul here seems to be enjoying it. I feel like, though, <clears throat> for as much as I love to laugh at those guys on this show or movie, whatever I'm watching, I feel like we commonly find ourselves in the exact same situation. And the things that we are willing to get worked up in, the things that we are willing to invest our lives in, the things that we are willing to even, like, stress ourselves out in, like, cause our lives to have sort of more suffering and pain, how often do they just, like, not matter at all? How often are they just, like, pointless? Here's the weird thing, too. Uh, if any of this is to be believed, then basically, like, I am upsetting myself and living a more difficult life. I'm actually making my life worse by all of the stress and anxiety and all of the challenging situations that I get myself in while I'm chasing after these things that aren't going to last and aren't going to mean anything anyway. Whereas Paul is suffering more than I could possibly imagine and actually experiencing a better life as a result of it while he is chasing after things that are actually going to matter. And even if he loses, then he gets eternal life as his reward. It's this sort of poisoned cycle that we get ourselves into. The second that we lose focus on what life is actually all about and where actual meaning and purpose is found in life, it's so easy to get distracted and wrapped up in things that don't matter, that aren't going to matter a year from now, that aren't going to matter 10 years from now, that really, really have no meaning. And sadly, in chasing those things and trying to find some meaning and purpose in them, actually end up hurting and harming ourselves when, in fact, if we would just chase after the one thing that matters in the world, just following after Jesus, we would actually find more and better life. Now, not better that the world would say, not, not better in the life is good sense, but more meaningful life. Life as it was actually meant to live, life that actually means something. 
The choice before you is not suffering or no suffering. There's not an option for that. There's, the choice before you is not death or no death. There's not an option for that. Everyone is going to die. The choice before you is meaning or not meaning. Living a life that actually has some purpose or having one with no purpose. Your choice is in suffering with no purpose or suffering with a purpose. Suffering for a reason. The choice is death avoided and feared as long as you possibly can until it eventually comes or death that leads to eternal life death that feels like a reward death that comes as a welcomed gift of God And the beautiful thing about this is that someone else has already made this choice for you. Jesus came on and chose suffering and death for your sake so that you might actually take on his eternal life. So he comes in, he looks at this world, he sees the ways that we are causing suffering for ourselves, he sees the ways that we're causing suffering for others, he sees the ways that it is just uh, part of humanity as uh, to suffer. He comes in, takes on all of that suffering, all of that sin, all of that pain, all of that death onto himself, lives a perfect life where he deserves no sin, he, I mean he deserves no punishment, he deserves no ridicule, and he deserves no death, but instead he takes that death on the cross for you and for me he actually takes on the suffering that we have to experience in life the suffering that that we probably righteously deserve he takes that on himself and then exchanges that death that once and final death that we actually deserve he exchanges that for his eternal life for us to accept that free gift that he's given us and then live our lives for anything else Especially anything else that's not actually going to satisfy us. Especially anything else that doesn't actually remove suffering from our lives. And it's a sham. Because what he offers on the cross is an invitation to leave that whole game. To leave behind this world of money and sex and power. To leave behind this world of desperately seeking something to satisfy you. To leave behind this world of being stuck in the, the hamster wheel of life. Just trying to chase after the next big thing. Of trying to avoid suffering. Of trying to avoid death. He invites us to leave all of that behind. And live our lives with him. Awaiting the time when we might be fully with him for eternal life. He invites us to live a life of meaning and of purpose. He invites us to live a life serving his kingdom and seeing his kingdom come to fruition. He invites us to live a life of sharing that good news, that gospel message of his hope and his love with people who so desperately needs it, need it. I don't really have uh, a big sort of takeaway application kind of conclusion for you today other than just uh, in the next couple minutes we're actually going to sing this next song. And, and this is a, a time to think. Uh, if you're 
not a follower of Jesus today, man, this is a time to sort of like ask yourself the question, like, what exactly are you living for? What is what is the purpose and meaning behind all of this? I would argue, at least in my life, uh, I have found the only thing that is worth living for is actually living for Jesus, that to live is Christ. Man, and if you're having trouble coming up with an answer to that question, like, what is this all about, especially a meaningful and substantial answer, and I would love to talk to you more. Danielle would love to talk to you more. We're going to have people actually praying uh, in the corners of the room. They would love to talk to you more about that. And if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is the beginning of the year. It's a good time to sort of take some self-assessment and ask yourself the hard question of, like, what exactly have I been living for? Think about what has been occupying your heart for the past few days. Think about what has been occupying your mind. Think about the things uh, that you have been doing to either sort of counteract suffering or avoid suffering. Think about all of that. And then I want you to think hard on the life of Paul. Think hard on this crazy man living 2,000 years ago who, while sitting from a prison cell, writes to live as Christ and to die as gain because he has found something that, at least in my life, I am all too often missing. The reason why I don't have an application for you is because I think if we all take this question very seriously, I think if we actually ask ourselves that hard question, there is absolutely no telling what God will do in and through us. I don't want to give an application because I don't want to limit the power of the Holy Spirit and what he would do in a group of people who would say, hey, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.